Okay. Now that we know the names of the three Nephites, we'll now move on. It's for the recording, so people... Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. There's, there's going to be a couple of reasons why the church was not organized earlier. Here's the first one. Verse 2. I have manifested unto you by my Spirit in many instances that the things which you have written are true. Therefore you know they're true. And if you know that they're true, I'll give you a commandment that you rely on the things that are written and the things that we're relying on are what's in the Book of Mormon. And the question is, what's in the Book of Mormon that would preclude them starting the church? Look at the next verse. Okay? For in them are written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. Now, what, what would be in the Book of Mormon that would say, okay, we want you to have the Book of Mormon in your hands before we actually found the church? What's in the Book of Mormon? The sacrament prayers. Sacrament prayers are in there. We know they'll be in section 20. Baptismal prayers. Baptismal prayers have to be there, even though those are in section 20. The name of the church. The name of the church. So you know what name? Exactly. What else? Remember, the Book of Mormon has the fullness of the gospel, right, Elder? Yeah, it's like, for example, in Moroni chapter, I think Moroni 6, it's, you know, it talks about taking in the sacrament often and being together to strengthen the members and taking their names and making records of the members of the church. A lot of little nitty-gritty things about how the church is supposed to run are in there. Exactly right. So procedurally, administratively, the Book of Mormon is full of those things. We don't necessarily look at the Book of Mormon for us now for administrative things because we have Doctrine and Covenants. But that, that's what they had was the Book of Mormon and the first Doctrine and Covenants wouldn't hit the shelf until 1835. Okay? What else is in the, by the, way, in the Book of Mormon that they would need? Uh-huh. And his teachings. So in other words, in order to prepare people to be members of the church, here's the fullness of the gospel, which is all about the atonement, and it is to teach about him. Okay? Alright, so that's part. But now, here comes another one. This is from the uh, History of the Church, 1829. We had not been long engaged in solemn, fervent prayer when the Lord, word of the Lord came unto us in the chamber. What chamber? Father Whitmer's chamber upstairs of the Peter Whitmer farm that was kind of the Holy of Holies for a season. Okay? So the word of the Lord, and by the way, the word of the Lord we know from our discussion last time, section 128, the word of the Lord was not just revelation, spirit, inspiration, but it was verbal. They heard it. Remember section 128. The voice of God speaking in the chamber of Father Whit or Father Whitmer's chamber. Okay? Um, came to the chamber commanding us that I should ordain Oliver Cowdery to an elder and that he should ordain me to the same office 
and then to ordain our others that should be made known unto us from time to time. Does that sound like organization of the church? Okay. We were, however, commanded to defer our ordination, and now listen close, until such time as it should be practical to have our brethren who had been and and who should be baptized assembled together when we must have their what? Sanction. How would we say that differently now? Sustaining. Sustaining, right? Uh, a few years ago, there was a man uh, that decided that uh, women should have the priesthood. He was a high priest, and he and uh, he called uh, uh, in Salt Lake the uh, newspaper and radio and television and everything, and he said, you ought to come down around noon just outside Temple Square. I'm going to be ordaining my wife to the priesthood. So everybody shows up with their cameras. This ought to be good. And by the way, I'm a high priest. I hold the priesthood. I'm going to be able to ordain my wife. And so with great pomp and circumstances, he ordains his wife and an elder in the, the priesthood. And, and by virtue of the priesthood in me, I can do this. Okay? The problem with this, of course, would be what? He didn't have the equipment. He's a priesthood holder. Okay, amen to the priesthood of that man, number one. What else? He didn't have it. He, well, technically it sounded like he had the keys, right? Because it, it came with the Melchizedek priesthood. But it wasn't presented before the membership. There it is. You get it? It wasn't presented. In other words, when we do, when we get ready to uh, uh, ordain somebody to the Melchizedek priesthood, uh, I know, as I said in high council meetings, that President Wilding will say such and such has been presented. Anybody, anybody know any reason why this shouldn't happen? No? Okay, we're going to go ahead and sustain it as a high council. Okay, now we're... Then what do we do? Go present it to the members. If we're going to have a state conference, we'll do it at the state conference. Otherwise, we'll do it because the common consent says uh, that we're going to vote it down. Is this a democratic church? Why are we doing... What's the deal with common consent? Oh, okay. I love the principle behind that. It says it's the Book of Mormon is going to tell you it's not normally people don't normally choose uh, wickedness. That's why I've always said stand back because at this point, you know, the church or the the country is doing a lot of abortions. Have we have a have we as a people ever had a chance to vote on performing abortions? No, just the courts. Watch out if we ever get a chance to actually vote with our voice saying we will now sanction abortions as a people. Now that people have chosen wickedness, I think that will put us in kind of a, a rocky place as a people. Yeah. There are a few exceptions to that. Yeah. <laughs> Where somebody is ordained an elder when it's between conferences and sent on a mission. Yeah. And then it's later ratified by right. the... Oh, okay. So let's say somebody's going on a mission between conferences. How's that handled? They bring it up during the state conference. They will bring it up that it happened. That it has happened, yeah. Has it ever sustained? Yes. 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 It's done. It's done. I will get a call from time to time. Uh, 
from the war, from the state clerk saying, we're doing a call around. And we have to have a quorum of, of the, the high counselors enough that we now have the sustaining, even though we're not in the same room together, we're calling around, can you sustain this action? Yep. When they have nine, then they won't. You may get a call, you may not. If we have nine by the time I get to you, then I won't call you. But it's still a sustaining vote by, by those uh, representatives of the church. And again, is this a democracy? No, it's a theocracy. But why are we doing this? To do what? We're going to take upon ourselves a responsibility for what? To accept and to sustain and to participate in, in whatever manner we've been called yeah. to. And that's why technically can you sustain the state president, the bishop, can you sustain these actions? Meaning that we will, what we're going to do is that we will be, uh, we're going to sanction uh, what has happened. Have them decide by vote whether they're willing to accept us as spiritual teachers or not. When we're also commanded to bless bread and break with them and, and wine and bless and drink it with them. In other words, the covenants will take place. But it has to happen when we can actually get all the people together and get their sustaining. Meaning they will support us. Meaning that if we have sustained them and then we choose to do something else, where does the condemnation fall? On us. We said we would and we didn't. We said we would follow their counsel. We're not. But we have to have that right and that privilege and that opportunity to condemn ourselves. <laughs> or to bless them and sustain them. That's why when we are, when we're in the process of grumbling about what the bishop is doing, or the police society president is doing, our, our responsibility is actually to do what? We're going to sustain them. To help them out. Help them out. Help them succeed. Do what it's going to take to pull that off. Okay? Alright. So, afterward, so, so when you have that opportunity, you're going to be able to provide the sacrament, you're going to be able to have them all assembled together, afterward proceed to ordain each other according to the commandment, then call out such men as the church should dictate, and ordain them. So we would really like to have the church sooner, but first of all, we're going to have to have the Book of Mormon in place, and then we're going to have to have the people gathered together so there can be a sustaining uh, of the actions that have taken place. Okay. And by the way, the, the, the Book of Mormon will be published on March 26th. The church will be organized April 6th. They didn't wait a whole long time by the time this stuff happened. Yeah. She knew somebody that never raises their hand to sustain, so they're really not never on the hook to have to sustain them. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> were they an attorney? <laughs> it's a loophole. I technically, or, or they were, or they're about fifteen. I didn't really say I was going to do that. Sort of said I might, you know. I'm trying to do that. I didn't promise. I didn't really promise. Okay, I promised, but I was like. Not really loud promising, or I was. And the answer to that, of course, is. Nice try. Yeah, nice. Because your job is to sustain, even if that hand isn't coming up, unless you know some reason why they shouldn't be, and then it's your responsibility to. 
speak up and go tell the bishop or the state president, there's a problem here that I know something that you may not know, and let me make sure that you have this information now, and, and then based on that, do you still issue the call? I told her she was technically not sustaining if she did. <laughs> yes, and she's technically toast. <laughs> technically, she's still on the hook, okay? Sorry. How often does that happen? I don't think very often. Uh, although, do, do you those of you remember, remember the Equal Rights Amendment? Remember the ERA ladies for years in conference? No, Equal Rights Amendment. No, we can't sustain the problem. You know, they'd be they'd be stirring things up in general conference. So then they would the, the brethren then say, "We're not going to tell you which conference session we're actually going to sustain the brethren." They're trying to offset that, and it's like, "But you guys aren't members, and that's not what the, the purpose of this is." They just wanted to be obnoxious. Yeah. In the gospel, there is no such thing as a neutral ground. So when you don't sustain, actually you are going to the, the, the other side, which is... Uh, she, yeah, she's saying in the, in the gospel, there's no such thing as neutral ground. And I couldn't say that any better. That is exactly right. Yeah. You refer if you almost keep the commandments, you almost get a blessing. If you almost keep the commandments, you almost get a blessing. If I almost sustain... I'm almost condemned, or I almost get the blessings from that. That's that's really funny. <laughs> yeah. So the forgiveness of rewards do we raise our hand? No, no. 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 Although I, w- I had a case the other day. We were in a we were in a t- talking about technicalities. I was in another ward, and and they were sustaining somebody, but then they said before we're going to release somebody. So those of you who can. Give them a vote of thanks, and I thought, well, shoot. I'm glad they. Came. I'm glad. Yeah, I, I know them. I think they did a good job. And so, I don't know if I was in trouble for. Yeah, I'm, I'm voting. Yeah, I'll. I'll I, I'm not going to be able to sustain them. I'm not part of this congregation, but I will definitely give them a vote of thanks. I always felt like, though, if it was something revolving around the priesthood, yeah, that, that affects the whole body of the yeah. church, and therefore I was part of that body. Could sustain them. Yeah, my guess is if you did that, I don't know that lightning would like strike, and, or the bishop would run down and haul you out or, or something. If I sustain them. Yeah, if you actually did the sustain and you're in another ward and you actually raise your hand to the square. Lightning's not going to strike. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, ahead of that, then let me give you just a little bit of. Uh, Background information. Uh, for this one, because I know that sometimes these pictures are a little harder to see. Somebody in the back want to hit the lights? Okay, we're now about to get, so we're now going to publish the Book of Mormon. Uh, the uh, preparation on the Book of Mormon, the actual typesetting of the Book of Mormon started in the summer of 1829. It's going to take about nine months to do. Uh, anybody, how many of you have been like to uh, Nauvoo and been to the printing press thing? So you heard how this worked. Okay, good. A lot of you. Uh, long, tedious process of putting these letters onto this onto this typeset thing and doing them backwards. Yeah. So you're trying to put it in there and then cramming it in so that you can see how that's exactly going to work. Uh, and the little pieces, by the way, are called the furniture. They go in there, and that's why when you hear when, and when we get to the destruction of the press in Independence, and they're going to talk about how the press was thrown out into the, into the street along with the furniture. 
Or in Nauvoo, when the Nauvoo Expository is thrown out into the street and the furniture, they're not talking about the chairs and tables. They're talking about the pieces of the press, the, the little pieces that formed uh, how, how this thing was done. So it's going to be typeset, uh, and and then, that's E.B. Grandin, and then the actual uh, printing press. You can see, and then they would then hang the sheets uh, up there uh, and let them dry. Just an incredibly long, laborious process. That's why, it, that's why it's going to take nine months to, to do this with the Book of Mormon. Page by page and hang them up, and then to the point we get them all done so then we can bind them together. Unbelievably long. And then and Granite had to hire uh, about three additional employees just for this project. Okay? Now, one other thing that, need, that you need to be aware of, just from a history standpoint, that I think is fascinating. They're going to typeset the Book of Mormon starting in the summer. So that means that by the time we get to about December, January, a lot of the Book of Mormon is like hanging there on in sheets, waiting for the rest of it to be done so they can all be then bound together. Okay, you have to do like 5,000 copies of the first page, 5,000 copies of the next few pages. Okay, now... The way that Brandon was making a little extra money to run his press operation was the fact that he was doing the Book of Mormon during the week, and then on Saturdays and Sundays he was renting the, the press building out to a guy by the name of Abner Cole. And Abner Cole was running a, uh, um, a newspaper called The Reflector. And he could write, and it was just kind of a, name, it was a weekly newspaper for Palmyra. Okay. Well, Abner Cole is kind of a uh, uh, nefarious sort. He's got a little larceny in his blood. And as he's kind of in there on the weekends, he's looking around at these sheets of the Book of Mormon. And he's going, wow, this is really kind of cool. So I think instead of putting in my own garbage into the reflector, maybe I'll just grab these pages and I'll start publishing them in the reflector. Okay. So here comes... So starting in January, we're going to get, uh, let's see, right there, aha, okay, and I love it, so here's the reflector, but he didn't necessarily want to put it under his name, Abner Cole, so he used a uh, pseudonym, and he's going to go, oh, Dogberry, I believe that's Shakespeare, is it not? Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. So this was published, the reflector was then published by O. Dogberry, Esquire. And if you'll notice the masthead on this, Know then thyself, promise not God to scan, the proper study of mankind is man. He's kind of an atheist kind of thing. If you want a proper study of God, it needs, or of man, it needs to be man, not appealing to God to understand man. Does that make sense? Okay. So... This is January 13th, 1830. Here comes this series, and he's starting, and he's doing, and he says erroneously it was called the Gold Bible, so he was going to start publishing it, but then he started seeing the title page and all of that in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and he, and he's, so he's working off of that. Okay? And by the way, as a side note, I know there's a lot of historical stuff. These manuscripts to be typeset into the Book of Mormon were under lock and key in the Smith home with someone under guard at all times. It would be brought up a page at a time, 
They would then typeset it for the day, and then Hiram or Oliver would then take it back under lock and key because they knew that there was so much opposition trying to destroy the printing of the, of the Book of Mormon. But that doesn't mean that they were hanging in there enough that Abner Cole could then start putting it in the reflector. Okay, So we start getting a number of weekly serialization of the Book of Mormon. This is actually the first publication of the Book of Mormon. It's, it's done by Old Dogberry <laughs> in the reflector. Uh, which, of course, is one of the reasons why Joseph Smith had copyrighted the book in the first place. So then they go to Joseph and they say, Cole is already putting this stuff out in the newspaper. So Joseph's got it. will actually then make two trips from Harmony all the way up to Palmyra to say, Stop it! Knock it off! Cole says, No, I won't. The second time there's a discussion about fisticuffs in the street. Maybe we'll fight about it. Um, and finally, there was enough, you know, Joseph was able to prove that this is a copywritten thing and I can actually send you off to jail. Then he subsists and he backs off, okay? However, he's got a good thing going. People are interested now in this Book of Mormon. So what Abner Cole will do, still under old Dogberry, is that he starts making up a story <laughs> about a group of people called the Nephites. But he can't call it the Book of Mormon, so he will call it the Book of Pukey. <laughs> and it came to pass in the latter days that we could just get abound, and the idle and slothful said one to another, we'll send for Walters the Magician. Any idea who Walters the Magician might be? Joseph Smith. Yeah. Who has strange books and deals with familiar spirits. Peradventure he will inform us where the Nephites hid their treasure. So be it that we and our vagabond band do not perish for lack of sustenance. He comes up with this great ongoing story thing called the Book of Cutie by O'Dogberry. Yeah, yeah, this is, it just doesn't have the same spirit, does it? You know? Okay. So, based on that then, now we get this thing in the Wayne Sentinel, and you'll notice that this one now is uh, March 19th, 1830, we, we were requested to announce that the Book of Mormon will be ready for sale in the course of next week. So here it finally comes. And with that done, and, and now we can gather the people together, and the church will then be organized within the next 10 days, right after that. How soon can we get everybody over to the Peter Whitmer farm as fast as possible and organize this? Okay? Questions on any of that? Oh, fun background. Kevin, yes, ma'am. I would think that this would certainly work up a lot of interest in the Book of Mormon, so that when it was published, everybody would want a copy. You know, you would think that. <laughs> but that's not what no, that's not what happened. Remember, the problem was is that up till now, Joseph had just been—he'd been kind of this crazy nut job, kind of out there with his gold plates and all this stuff. But things keep happening with the Grand Grandons printing press and it's still moving forward and now we've started actually seeing it starting in January we're seeing what it is and it's like 
Dang, this isn't just like a silly kind of thing. This is serious. That's why it is right about this moment is when then they had the town meeting and they all formed the pact as a town not to buy the book. And that's what sent Martin Harris, as we talked about last time, freaking out. They're not going to buy the book. They've all promised that they would. Um, so now, it, now it's pretty serious. But now with everything in place, now we're going to get to April 6th. And we're going to do it at the Peter Whitmer Farm. Uh, we're going to have about 100 people there total. They're gathered, gathered at the Peter Whitmer Farm. Oh, 30, 40 gathered. There were others that around that. This where they get the house. Six people constituted the formal organization. Uh, now, we're going to find out in section 20 that there is some... That it says it was organized according to the laws of uh, the state of New York and the country. They have searched in vain. They searched uh, in the early uh, 18, uh, four, late 1840s. William Staines went to New York trying to find... The actual incorporation stuff. Uh, recently, in the last 10 years, there was a massive search by BYU researchers to find the incorporation stuff. has never been found. And there's a, there's a growing belief among Book of Mormon and church history researchers that Section 20 is that incorporation doc- document. This is what the church is. This is the requirement of the people in the church. And suddenly, Section 20 may be that document. It just didn't have to be filed, it just had to be published. So anybody would know what this church was about. Does that that make sense? Okay? All right. There were six baptized that day, the original six. And then there were were several others. I just think this is kind of interesting. I like this. There were four others baptized also that day. Martin Harris. See, he had his bad days and he had his good days. This is a good day. Martin Harris is baptized on the day of the church organization. Joseph and Lucy Mack Smith. Some of you have seen the church video of Joseph finally hugging his dad and finally my dad has found his church. You know, his dad was never plugging into any of the churches that they were looking at. And there's a lot of tears on Joseph's part that finally my father has been churched. He finally found that church and there's a lot of joy. You know who else was baptized that day? One other. Coolest guy ever. Yeah. <laughs> Porter Rockwell. Oh, Porter Rockwell. We're getting, you know, we'll see how much we get a chance to talk about old Port later. But Porter Rockwell was a childhood friend of Joseph Smith and had actually been out doing extra jobs. Like he was picking berries. Uh, he was a couple of years younger than Joseph. He would be actually out picking berries and selling them to help finance the publishing of the Book of Mormon. So for whatever else we may hear about Porter Rockwell, he's he's Brigham Young's bodyguard on the way down to southern Utah, and Brigham Young and the the, the bunch are in the front wagons. On the way down there, Porter Rockwell was pretty well drunk on his head in the very back wagon. Whatever other stories are out there of Porter Rockwell, I need you to remember that he was baptized on the day the church was organized, and it was through his own efforts as a child that he helped the Book of Mormon be uh, published. Okay? Okay. So now, that said, let's, let's finally take a look at section 20. 
which we think may be the organizational doc- document for the for the church. Kevin, can I ask a question? Yeah. On April 6th, that's my mom's birthday, so I'm always aware of that date. Yeah. Is that core? I heard some people say that was the day that Christ was supposed to have been born. How do we, where does that come from? Uh, why don't we start with verse 1. Okay. <laughs> this is like great timing, you know what I'm saying? I it in there. It's all about timing. The rise of the church of Jesus Christ in these last days being 1,830 years from the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly organized and established according to the laws of the country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. Uh, There is some question as to whether the Savior was actually born on April 6th. We have a couple of brethren Joseph Fielding Smith being one who said it was, and so the church was being organized on the exact date. I don't know if we know that exactly for sure, because others have not been quite so sure. But certainly we know that it, it dates back here uh, to that time. Okay? Yeah? You can somewhat gauge that too by the, uh, the account in the Book of Mormon, where it talks about <laughs> on the day the Savior was born and they started yep. their time and it was 34 years and so many days after that that, you know. Yeah. And in fact, when we get to the discussion about Sabbath day, we're going to talk about sacred days. That things are sacrified, sanctified, if you will. Sanctified and sanctified. Meaning that there are sacred places, there are sacred times, and sacred people that those three things have to come together to create sanctity. And one of them is a sacred time. And so it's not an accident that there would be a date sanctified by his birth and death. And the church would probably line up. What I was meaning, though, is that you can correlate that back to that he was was crucified, the Savior was crucified on a day that corresponds to a Passover. Absolutely. You know, and if you look back, at what day that was and what <laughs> so you're going to find the April 6th of the time you're going to find September 21st have a significant now there's going to be a number of dates here that when we get into that we'll, we'll talk about how that kind of works okay. I just wanted to check is there also something about Jesus Christ dying on that same day because uh-huh. remember he was born apparently he was born at Passover and then, of course, we know that he died at Passover. His death is not hard to figure out because we know that. And it's the birth that is sometimes just a little bit up for, for grabs. I, I, I personally have some doubts. Well, they say it's 34 years and four days. Yeah. yeah. That, that they're quite specific in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, pretty clear. Yeah. I, you would know this. I know that um, can, when President Heath dedicated the Palmyra Temple, yeah. he did it on April 6th. Yeah. And Salt Lake Temple as well was, was he done. He talked that. about everything that had happened on, on April, April 6th. 6th. And it talks about all of that. Yeah, and he mentions that as well. Yeah, you can I think if you have, I, I believe that if you just went online, I'll bet if you just Google dedicatory prayer or some of those conversations. I'll bet you. Ah, ah okay. So, yes. Okay, Let, let's now. I want you to I want you to know something about section twenty. 
Most of section 20 was actually written in June and July of 1829. They could see the church was coming. They were already cobbling together these chunks of doctrine. And they would write them, and they would put it together, and then they would finish with a amen. And then you get to get another section. Amen. And another section. Amen. And if you look through in, in mine, I went through and marked all the amens because it, it, it separates these this patchwork of thoughts. And I looked at it, to be quite honest with you, over and over and over in the last week or so, and then suddenly I, I, I did one of these little mega views, I kind of stepped back, put those down there, and suddenly saw that it laid into a beautiful pattern that I'd never seen before. Um, so here's what I found. So verses 1 through 4 is the, is the intro, obviously. And at the end of verse 4, we get... Amen. Okay, so now we're going to go to the next section. 5 through 12. Joseph is called and purified. Now this is... This is another one where I kept looking at it. It's one of those times, you know, you look at it and go, I'm seeing something here, what am I seeing, what am I seeing, what am I seeing, what am I seeing, what am I seeing? Ah, there it is. You just have to kind of look long enough. Here it is. Listen closely how this works. Verse 5. After it was truly manifested unto this first elder, meaning who? Joseph. Joseph. That he had received a remission of his sins. Okay, stop for a sec. Where did that happen? That wasn't a baptism. The first vision. Remember, what we talked before, that is, the mo- one of the most powerful things for Joseph at the first vision was not just that he had seen the Father and the Son, but what drove him into the grove in the first place. He had sat in enough revivals that he knew that he was sinful and he needed to know, not just I want to join a church and I need to know which one would be the most right. He wanted to know which church he could go to that would do what? Purify him. Cleanse of his sin. He wanted his sins remitted. I need my sins to be gone. And is it by baptism or not? Or by faith or by not? Or by grace or by communion? Or how does this work? And I need to know which church is going to do that. Because if I get to that one, then my sins should be cleansed. And that's why the very first words that he hears in the first vision are, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven. It's the very first thing. Thou, now his mind's at ease. He's able to hear everything else that's about to come. It is. Yeah, you have to, and it's not in the it's not in the uh, Pearl of Great Price version that we have of the first vision. You have to do the amalgamated. You have to put them all together, and it's actually one that he gave, I, I believe, in uh, I think it's part of the Wentworth letter. Is the part where he actually said that? Okay. Yeah. That's another indication of where he was purified from the spirit versus that. Yes. In fact, hang on to that one. Great. Great. He does say that when he was baptized, he was filled with, in verse 73, he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Yeah. And cleansed again. Which is going to be important to us, by the way. Okay? So listen. So, he'd received a remission of his sins, comma. Then what happens? 
He said, so he gets a remission of his sins. Then he says, uh, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. And I love this phrase, brothers and sisters. I think this is so great. He is entangled again in the vanities of the world. Now, I hope you're starting to see the pattern. And I hope you're starting to apply this to you. Because this ought to become very, very personal in just a second. That's the pattern. We we go and we have a remission of our sins, whether that is in uh, at the time we're baptized, whether that's before we were baptized. We'll talk about that in a sec. Sometimes it's simply a matter that we come to sacrament meeting with with open and grateful hearts, and we walk out of sacrament meeting having taken the sacrament, and we have had a remission of our sins. We're clean. And then what happens? We go out and sin. Specifically, how do we sin? We be we become entangled in the vanities of the world. If you want to know what the vanities of the world are, just get a clip from last night. <laughs> I didn't say that. Let me take it back. Huh? This is in verse five. He returned. He received a remission of his sins. He was entangled, and I love and entangled. You get that that feeling. It's like like so I'm up here. I'm, I'm all entangled in all this stuff. And we go out trying to live life and work and family. Think our teenagers get entangled in the vanities of the world. What do I wear? What do I not wear? How how revealing should my dress be or not? You, you know what kind of music are we listening to or not? They just end up getting entangled in the vanities of the world after we got a remission of our sins. We just do it. And then we get cleansed. And then we go out and we get entangled in the world again. And then we get cleansed. In this case, he says, so we're going to get entangled again in the vanities. And again, we think Joseph Smith, he says in his history, I had a jovial nature. I tend to be gregarious. Uh, we're also pretty sure that at times when, how did he meet Martin Harris? He met Martin Harris digging a well on Martin Harris's property. And he had a work crew. And from time to time, if the work crew wasn't working the way that Joseph Smith felt it ought to be, or they were goofing off too much, we will fight about it. And, and he, was, he had, as Truman Madsen said, a deaf use of his fists. <laughs> Which he then mourned the fact that he had this nature. That he was, it was not seeming of a prophet to be punching out the guys you're working with. <laughs> not a real good thing. Okay, so he becomes entangled, and then, verse 6 but after repenting, and humbling himself sincerely through faith, God ministered unto him with a holy angel. Okay, so he goes through this process, he repents, he humbles himself, and then there's going to be a ministering of angels. And where is this for Joseph? Why did he start praying that night in 1827? 
Why? He wanted a remission of his sin. It was back to the remission of his sin thing. I'm feeling bad about what I've done. I now need to be cleansed again. And that's when he's doing it. And he's in the act of asking for forgiveness when Moroni comes. Okay? Now, follow the pattern for us. We repent. We have a cleansing. We get entangled in the vanities of the world. Then if we will humble ourselves and repent, what does he say will happen? A ministry of angels. We talked about this. You go back to 2 Nephi 31 and 32. That anybody who has been baptized and cleansed with the power of the Holy Ghost, now can ye do what? Speak with the tongue of angels speaking through you. Sometimes in a full-time capacity as missionaries, sometimes in teaching, sometimes in parenting, sometimes standing up at a sacrament meeting as a teacher, as a giving a talk. We speak with the tongue of angels. By the way, I'm finding, this is a side note, I just think it's interesting. In, in my old days, I used to do a lot of hypnotherapy as a, as a therapist. I don't a lot anymore. But I found the best hypnotic suggestion ever. People just immediately go to sleep. All you have to do is say, and now we will turn time over to the high council. <laughs> and people will go. It's just a reflexive response. You just can't even help yourself. It only works for more, but everybody else will Okay, so in other words, but look at the pattern. The pattern is awesome about saying, I, uh, I'm going to get a forgiveness. I'm going to uh, I'm going to end up getting entangled again. I'm going to be cleansed. He's going to respond with a ministry of angels for you. Now, uh, we heard yesterday, somebody quoted in church, and I don't even remember who they were quoting, but I thought it was exactly right on. And they said that this is a gospel of action. This is a gospel of action. So if, the, if, if you're going to get the ministry of angels, and then the angels are going to speak through you, what's going to happen now? You've got to work. You're going to be told what to do, right? That's how this works. When, when the Spirit speaks, it's going to say, now it's time for you to talk to this person, accept this call, go take care of this, make an additional do that. Okay, there's going to be an action to this. Okay? And most of the time, that action is going to be, how, what's our response usually when the Lord is putting more on us? Oh. I, I was at a, I was at a, a uh, gathering on Saturday night, and I pulled our Relief Society president aside, and I said, how are you doing? And she goes, oh. <laughs> 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 I said, yeah, it, it, it's a little heavy. Yeah, it is. Okay, and, and if, if you'd asked her at the time she was called great release item present, she would have gone, I've seen what they do, I can't do that. Well, she's doing it, she's doing a magnificent job, but it's heavy, and it weighs heavy on her. Okay, uh, in our high council meeting yesterday, uh, President Wiley was anxious to talk about how do we roll some of the stuff off of bishops and put them onto quorum presidencies and stuff like that. Roll that stuff off, because bishops... I office with my bishop, and he was saying the other day, he started figuring out his out of his tax season. He's a CPA. 
And we know that he's putting somewhere around, you know, like 30 hours or something a week into bishoping. And I know that he's sitting in our office at tax season until about 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning trying to make up for the time that he's answering all the emails and things coming in as a bishop. I, and I know that. And I don't know how he does it. Large amounts of Diet Coke, I suspect. <laughs> We're going to hook him up intravenously. So. Okay, so we're going to receive the ministering of angels, and you go, okay, now I've been told what to do, and then look at the next line here. And I just think, this tells us, for all of us, um, verse 6, God ministered by a holy angel whose countenance was as lightning, whose garments were white and pure. It was pretty pretty spectacular. I couldn't miss it. It was an angel, in case there's any questions. And 7... Imagine reading the, reading verse seven to a group of teenagers. And now, as a result of getting tangled in the vanities, you're going to get a ministry of angels, and these angels are going to do what? Give you commandments that will inspire you. You're going to get more things you can't. And more things you have to do that you really don't want to do. And it will inspire you. Most of the time, I'm not necessarily hearing from the youth saying, you know what I need? I need more commandments. Please. I I, I got caught up in in, tangled in some vanities, and I really would like some more commandments. They're just not going there. But, But he's saying, I was given commandments which inspired me. And, and again, you think about your calling and your lives and, and everything that you're doing, and it's like, I just don't need more to do. And then, here comes the next line. Lest you be crushed by, oh my gosh, I've got everything else, don't put any more on me, please. And he's going to say... Gave unto him commandments which inspired him, and then did what? Gave him. I will ask a lot from you as a Latter day Saint, but I will empower you. Ministering of angels will come, and they will give you power. And not just any power. But listen to this line, and it's, and it's interesting how he says that. Gave, gave him power from on high by the means which were prepared, or before prepared, to translate the Book of Mormon. That's Joseph. For us, since we're not responsible for translating the Book of Mormon, leave off the last phrase. And then you have you. Gave unto him commandments which inspired him and gave him power from on high by the means which were before prepared. I really like the footnote there on commandments because the commandments may not inspire us, but the footnote says divine guidance. Yes. Now that's inspired. Isn't that great? And it's going to be divine guidance, and he says, So I'm going to ask you to do some things. I'm going to give you some guidance. Here's what I need you to do. And I'm going to give you power. 
And it will be power that was before prepared. How would you say that differently? I'm going to give you power. And I knew what you were going to need. And I will prepare things for you that will enable you to do what I need you to do. But I'm going to start working on it before because I already know it. Uh huh. So heavy. Sometimes he gives that ability to. Yep. Us to spiritually see that we can. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Uh, a, a while back, I was I was talking to uh, a good brother who kind of uh, grew up with the idea that you should kind of rough and tumble, kind of just take care of things and and just always pull yourself up by your bootstraps, kind of guy. And then his wife gets depression. And he has to, and he goes through that process of having to understand her depression and having to understand how that works and his own foibles. And when he finally understands it and gets it and has great love and sympathy for those that are depressed, then what does the Lord do? Yes. <laughs> Now he has a calling for him in a ward that's going to need that kind of compassion and love and sensitivity. By the means before prepared. I know what you will need. So, so that, what that really means is the Lord knew that he needed him as a bishop, which means I'm going to make his wife depressed so he'll be ready, right? <laughs> Isn't that nice how that works? I need to be taught patient, so I will, I'm supposed to then give birth to a mentally handicapped child. For my growing. No. <laughs> Other than the fact that the Lord knows it's going to happen, and because of that, you are going to learn things, and I will prepare you to handle that, but I will prepare you to learn those lessons and be able to bless the lives of others. And He knows, you will. And he knows your willingness. He knows that you'll do it. That's the means before prepared. I will get you ready to do what I'm going to ask you to do. And I know what experiences you'll go through. And we're going to come back to this thing in just a second. Yeah. So it's not that he's giving us, necessarily giving, making life press. Right. For the husband to learn how to be a bishop. But what is it what he's doing is utilizing the trials we're going through? Yeah. And knowing what's going to happen and knowing what your reactions will be and preparing callings for you in the future that will take that accumulated knowledge that you have and be able to use that to bless the lives of others based on your experience back here. The means before prepare. I will prepare you for the callings that I will place you in. Does that make sense? Okay, now, so, real quickly... And notice we're... <laughs> we got 25 minutes and we've got, what, five verses? <laughs> All right. So here's the pattern. We're going to have a remission of sins whenever that comes. We're going to get entangled. We're going to we'll humble ourselves, repent. He will re respond with the ministry of angels. With that ministry of angels, He will then give you power and He will prepare the means ahead of time for you to accomplish what He asks you to do. Does that, does that make sense? Isn't that cool? We are Joseph. 
And he is our pattern. And we may not be translating the Book of Mormon, but we have our own challenges in life that can, to us, can seem as God. Once you hear them, and, and those of the Plano State heard President Wilding say this over and over at conference, if you're getting these impressions, write them down, you now have a responsibility to carry them out, basically. So we were That's ministering of angels. Yeah. You'll hear thoughts forming in your head. That's what that is. But the idea is that we were at a meeting that was a commandment for us to be at. Yep. Yep. Or related to any topic he was involved in. And, and I, I've mentioned before, and I just, I just like it's always to be aware, that any time that you walk even into like this meeting, and you show up here with your problems, any time we can get you and your problem and the Spirit in the same room at the same time, the Spirit would love to teach you. So there are times when you're sitting and listening to a discussion about Abner Coles, and you're getting inspiration about what to do with your family. Trust that. You're in the same room with the Spirit. And with very believing people. That makes a powerful group. Okay? Alright. Okay. That's okay. I'm going to flip through a couple of these more and then because there's a there's another really important one coming up. Okay. Verse 13 to 16. Here comes another one. Talking about the witnesses. Um, and these witnesses are going to bear witness. Then here comes the next section. And in 17 to 28, we're going to get this great discussion about um, the nature of God. Now... Can you already see the pattern? Here's the overall pattern. You see the pattern for somebody who might be interested in joining the church? They, they need to understand Joseph. They need to understand that there are other witnesses involved here. But based on that, what's the next thing that they, you need to make sure, elders, that these, that these potential converts know? The nature of God. It's really hard to understand why it is there would even be a prophet, Joseph Smith, unless you understand the nature of God. And understanding the nature of God tells you what? This is, who he, this is how he works. He works through prophets and always has. Because God always speaks to prophets through ages, through the ages. Yeah, and, and so this is not a vindictive, angry, spiteful, 
God, this is one who loves you and is going to provide prophets. And, and so let me teach you, and which kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week in section 19, right? That we, we're so afraid of the part of the nature of God is not just that you're going to have endless punishment and eternal punishment. And the mystery of godliness given to poor Martin Harris was what? Endless is my name. Hell has an exit. And I love you. Endless punishment is my punishment that prepares you to step up and I will send ministering angels. I will give you means. I will give you power. I will give you direction to do what I ask you to do. And I love you. And if, if there has to be a punishment, it will be endless punishment. Which is my name. It, it, won't, it doesn't last forever. Well, that's comforting. Okay, so, nature of, of God and man. Now, I love this quote by uh, St. Nibley. <laughs> Who's the patron saint of BYU. <laughs> Last time when I was on campus, you know, as a student in my past, Brother Nibley on campus, and he's wearing... Uh, his his uh, Deseret Industries suit and red sneakers and his, and his burned out brown bag that he always carried with him and he's busy talking to himself and having this great conversation. <laughs> this, the stuff that guy knew and then I'd go sit in classes and it would kind of go whoosh. <laughs> But when he decided to write and be a little satirical th th this is Hugh Nibley. The astonishment fulfillment of Moroni's prophecy to a country kid living out in the backwoods that his name would be known for good and evil among men everywhere is enough in itself to prove that Joseph Smith was a true prophet. It was mostly Moroni's fault. <laughs> the night he visited Joseph Smith, he widened the yawning gulf which the first vision had placed between Joseph and normal people and removed him from the sphere of established theology and rational thinking. The minute that Joseph was kneeling in that grove and he saw the Father and the Son, he suddenly knew more than the collective knowledge of all of the ministers on the earth at that time. And he could never be the same after that, because he knew that most of what they were preaching was bolder than As far as the physical attributes and, and all of those kind of things. And then hearing this wonderful God say to this boy, your sins are forgiven. So he, it, uh, so I love this idea. It widened the yawning gulf which the first vision had placed between Joseph and normal people. Spoiled him forever. Once you get that knowledge, I remember when my boys were little and we would go down to uh, the ballpark to go watch Texas Ranger baseball, and we were happiest clams sitting in the bleachers. And it was cheap, and it was fun, and we spent our summers out there having a great time. And then just once, I decided I would take Cindy to a ball game, and instead of sitting in the bleachers, we would sit ten rows up behind home plate <laughs> to watch Nolan Ryan pitch. <laughs> And hearing the grunt and the groan of guys and, and watching the trajectory and everything ruined me for the bleachers. 
It was hard to sit in the bleachers after being there. And I think for Joseph, he was happy when he knew and suddenly he knew more and he could never go back to that. Some kind of inspired super devil might have gotten away with some of the things Joseph did. But no blundering, dreaming, undisciplined, shallow, and opportunistic faker could have left behind what Joseph Smith did both in men's heart and on paper. Which is very obvious when you read the words of Mr. Cole. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And by the way, you can go online, you can look up Abner Cole, you know, an old dog berry, and you can read a lot of uh, the book of Pukey. And you can see just how much he's, how much he's going after Walter the Magician. And just what a nutcase Walter the Magician is. And, and Hugh Nibley's point was, if Joseph was as absolutely over-the-top nutso as what they thought he was, then no blundering, dreaming, undisciplined, shallowing, uh, constantly drunk on the corner with no ne'er-do-well, and all the stuff that was said about him, that still shows up in anti-Mormon doctrine, by the way. I'll see pamphlets and books and stuff like that, and they're still quoting the crap that came out in 1835. We'll talk about that a little bit. And this is how they proclaimed him. Could have left behind what Joseph Smith did, both in men's hearts and on paper. I just think that's magnificent. Okay. Now, the next part... Let me kind of hustle through this. I don't want to... Because we got short time. 29 through 36, this, little, this next little section here um, has a little part here that I want to kind of dispel for just a, a second if I can. Because um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this discussion in the church. And it can be a little bit confusing. I don't know how many times you have heard the discussion in Gospel Doctrine or Relief Society or wherever, and they'll, they'll say to you, okay now class, what is the difference between uh, justification and sanctification? And, and, and you'll watch people go, I don't know. And then there'll be some you know, smart aleck in the room, I don't know. I mean, you know, and you know, what is, what is this? Because there's always these two pieces here. Okay? Can I show you why it is that we get... And he's going to talk about it. Justification is true. Sanctification is true. All that kind of stuff. Look at this. Let me just show you why, why this might be confusing. Here's justification. And let me go back into the scriptures. Depending on which verses you're looking at, looking at justification can come from Christ. It can come from faith. It can come from grace. It can come from works. It can come from Christ's blood. It can come from the Spirit. Uh, it can come from any of those things. That will make you justified, whatever that is. That justification thing. Okay. Oh, I think I know what that is. How about sanctification? 
And again, we're going to talk much more about sanctification of the Sabbath day discussion. Okay? Yeah. Are you trying to jump ahead here? Because <laughs> here, here's sanctification. Okay? By Christ, by the grace of God, by the truth, by the word of God, by God the Father, by law, by water, by Holy Spirit, and by blood. This, brothers and sisters, is why you always get confused between justification and sanctification. Because depending on which verses you're looking at, this seems to all kind of be the same. And I need you to see it as the same. That this process of being justified and sanctified blends together in such a powerful way that says, I'm going to take common people and I love them and I will make them holy. And at some point you're going to be justified in the remission of your sins by grace. And then the sanctification process will come whereby I prepare you to stand in my presence in the celestial kingdom. That's basically what it is. I will cleanse you, I will sanctify you, and I will do it if you'll just humble yourself and let me move you. And if you think you're going to do it on your own, perfectionist, you're always going to find yourself short. Because you're going to be trying to do for yourself what He intended to do for you. But we have to be willing to follow Him and then be empowered by the means prepared to go where He needs you to go. So don't, I guess what I'm saying to you, don't get bottled up in this. Because you're going to, depending on where you're reading, it can be kind of confusing. I don't think it's worth spending too much time on that other than to say, part of the atonement process is to cleanse you and sanctify you and prepare if you'll let me do Does that make sense? Yeah. Questions on that? Okay. All right. <laughs> but we're moving on. Yes, ma'am. Let's just put it in this bottle, shall we? Uh, and this was actually this is actually Stephen Robinson who wrote Believing Christ. Christians who follow the teachings of John Calvin deny the possibility of falling from grace. Because in this process, if you'll read these verses, you're going to find that you can fall from grace. You're receiving grace, you can fall from grace. Uh, Teachings of John Calvin deny the possibility of falling from grace, insisting instead on the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Okay? This is a major difference between Latter-day Saints and Calvinist Christians. We as members of the church sometimes get confused and insist that coming into the covenant requires works, which if we perform well, God will then reward with grace. Okay, make sure you hear this. I don't, I, are you saved by grace or by works? Grace. You are not saved by works. And this is where we can get in conflict with other Christians trying to prove we are saved by works. We're not. We're saved by grace. However, we are, uh, if we perform well, God will then reward with grace. But this is backwards. 
Entering the covenant requires faith and grace. Staying in it, enduring to the end and not falling from grace already received, requires work. So the grace of God is going to bring us to the table. We then need to be baptized. We then need to get to the temple. We need to be able to serve. But those are the works that keep us in from falling from grace. Does that, does that make sense? That's why I just think it's such a specious argument that we get into. Is we say by faith and works kind of thing. Well, that's dumb. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace. And our works keep us from falling from grace. If that makes sense. Okay. All right. That's it. Uh, let's see. Then we're you. Uh, all right. In the time we have left, because I don't want to miss this. Uh, section twenty-one. Because this is another one that as I'm looking at this, it's one of those <laughs> kind of moments. <laughs> when you finally see it and you start to try and wrap your head around this. Uh, by the way, there's a copy of W.W. Uh, uh, Phelps' copy of Section 21 that he was preparing for publication in Independence when it was actually published. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to make this point that we do need to have Oh yeah, and then not only that, once we do the work, then he, re- then he blesses us with greater power, and we're still in his debt. It's, like, it's not like we were paying back. So we're not doing the works on our own. No, we're not. That, a perfect point, yeah. Because if we're going to repent, he will then give us the ministry of angels, which will then empower us with means before prepared. Great, great point, yeah. Yeah, and we're not doing the works to pay him back. Right. He gives us the works so that we can... Yeah. Like yeah, there's no cosmic balance yeah, here. That's a, I'm so grateful for all of this grace. Now let me work hard so I can finally balance this. That, no. Because yeah, like the minute you start doing that, he gives you even more. Exactly. So we're always always behind and we're grateful, and that's Yeah. Okay, section twenty one. This was actually received on, on the day of the church was organized. The other was section twenty was all ready to go the day that they organized. To, from the summer before. Okay, this was actually received on April sixth. But I want you to focus in the time remaining on verses six and eight, six through eight, verse five, uh, leading up into it. Uh, For his word you shall receive, Joseph Smith, as from mine own mouth, in patience and faith. Verse six: By doing these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, and the Lord will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good. Odd phrase. Why would the heavens shake for our good? If somebody's really quick... Somebody want to turn real quickly to Joel 3, 16, and 17. Yeah. The Lord shall also wow, that was fat. How did you do that so quick? <laughs> ah, right. I've got, this, I've got this footnote in here, but man, you were already there. Okay. Joel, Joel 3, uh, 16 and 17. Okay. Okay. 
heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem the holy, be holy, and there shall be no strangers pass through in the Lord. Okay, cool. Now, why are the heavens shaking? In, the first, in that first verse, in 16, why are the heavens shaking? Okay, remember, read it again. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. Okay, why is heaven shaking? Because God is speaking. <laughs> and when he speaks at those moments, oftentimes it may roar in power and strength, and the heavens are shaking because he's speaking to you. Now, so he's going to say, uh, the heavens will shake for your good. Verse 7, for thus saith the Lord. Now, watch how this works. For thus saith the Lord God, him, Joseph Smith, have I inspired to move the cause of what? Zion in mighty power for good and his diligence I have known and his prayers I have heard. 8, yea, his weeping for Zion I have seen. And I will cause that he shall mourn for her no longer. His days of rejoicing are come under the remission of his sins and the manifestation of the Zion of my blessings upon his works. Okay, now, real quickly. This is given on April 6th. You've got six guys that are members of the church. You're going to baptize another four after that. So right at the end of the day, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has how many members? And we're going to talk about moving the cause of Zion forward. Now, if I go to Martin Harris on April 6, 1830, and I go, tell me about Zion. What's he going to say? I have no idea what Zion is. Yeah, but Joseph is moving the cause of Zion forward. Okay, so now let's take one step farther. Now, ten members of the church... I have seen Joseph weeping for Zion. Really? When was he doing that? When's he weeping for Zion? He's just excited that the church is getting started. He himself doesn't have a full vision of what it is the church is going to look like. That will be unfolding to him over time. When is he weeping for Zion? Now let me ask that question differently. When did Joseph weep for Zion? A lot. Where? Liberty. Liberty Jail. And when he started hearing the destruction of what happened to the saints in Missouri, they're being thrown out. We're going to organize Zion's camp to go redeem them. And I get there and I can't redeem them. And he sneaks across the river in the middle of the night so he can stand one last time in the goodly land, he calls it. So when did he weep for Zion? 1838. This is 1830. What's going on here? I have seen Joseph weeping for Zion. What's the Lord doing? It's foreshadowing. Here's the future. Now, 
Try and wrap your arm here. And because of that, he says, uh, I have seen Joseph weeping for Zion. He's moving the cause of Zion forward. For his, joys, his days of rejoicing are come unto the remission of his sins and the manifestation of my blessings upon his works. As we sit here today, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what days of weeping are there for you in the future? What days are out there somewhere? We had an experience in church yesterday where, I don't know how they, they swung this, um, as part of a conference that we did the third hour, we had a family um, stand up and sing to one another and to us, I am a child of God. And they sang to each other and they sang to us. Two days ago, Mom was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. Before the assignment was made. And as a family, they still did it. They still got up. They sang to one another. She did fine. He had a harder time with that. We were in pieces. The Lord knows what's going to happen to this family. We don't know. They don't know. Is there weeping to come? I don't know. There's weeping now. But what future weeping is there? And the Lord says, I've seen your weeping. And I will prepare a means for you to be able to survive that. I, will, I see your future pain. And I will take care of that. I know you. Let me be there for you. That's almost beyond my capacity to Brothers and sisters, I know that in, the, in our families and in our lives as members of the church that there is pain to come. And that the Lord will be there and will prepare me for us to be able to survive that and to bless us and to love us. <coughs> and I leave that way for you in Jesus' name. Deep gratitude, our, uh, deep gratitude in our hearts, Father, for the many blessings received this day. To be taught about the organization of the church and how it was organized by Brother Hinckley in preparation for this class. We're grateful to God for our life, but it means to us the many blessings that come from it. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.